This is Tajmika Torak, and this is a podcast all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down by propaganda. Okay, you never have to use that. I just really needed to do it. That happens around abolition and transformative justice in particular when you share it with someone for the first time and it feels a little dangerous. We're talking about not just a future without prisons and police. We're effectively telling people that the way that they imagined being safe is not real. We have to acknowledge how dangerous that feels to people. And that it's not necessarily a simple shift to be like, well, obviously it's hurting Black people. It's hurting trans people. It's hurting queer people. Like, here are all the people that are being hurt. I wish that that was a simpler shift. However, I have to reckon with the fact that human beings living in the United States have been taught that the way that we stay safe is by trusting law enforcement, and the criminal legal system. My vision for our conversation today is really about the question that I most often get. What happens if there are no police? Or where do we even start moving towards abolition? What is my role as an individual who is connected to various institutions? How do I move towards this vision, right? What do you see that I don't see? It feels to me a lot like time travel. I've been in this space of really like enjoying sci-fi right now. And there's something about the work of abolition and transformative justice because it's about uprooting intergenerational trauma. It's about digging into why we the conditions exist that brought us here and visioning forward. And to me, that's like I get to think about the past while I'm living in the future and doing things to move towards this radical vision. And that to me feels like time travel, which I think is a really interesting way to think about it. If we were going to move our beautiful little electric meatballs into the future and we're going to think about what does the world look like? If we are able to move towards transformative justice as a cultural norm, as a practice, what would that look like? That's what I want to talk about today. Yeah, I love that. I share a really similar hope for this conversation. When I was thinking about this question of what is possible, if we were imagining forward into the future of Abolition has happened. Transformative justice is part of our regular practices. What would the world look like? What's possible? How are we interacting with each other? And I think sci-fi is one of the best tools to do that because we can imagine into the future. We can play. It can be a reality that is recognizable to us because it has to be recognizable because it's also meant to be consumed, right? It's meant to be read, listened to, watched. So it has to have enough relationship to our reality that we can perceive it and we can take it in, but that it also allows us to imagine. That is such a powerful tool. 
And we aren't the first people to discover that sci-fi is a helpful dream around imagining our transformative justice futures. And so I think it's a really lovely place to start. I had actually told myself the story that I don't like sci-fi. And I'm trying to remember why I felt that way. Um, I think it had to do with the media that I had access to that was considered sci-fi. Whatever that was, I was like, meh. Uh, I'm not really into sci-fi. It was fantasy books. Like when I was a kid and I was like, meh, I don't really, I don't like sci-fi. So fantasy became the thing. And even now I do like fantasy books, but at that time I didn't. But the first book that actually got placed in my hands that was a recognizable sci-fi that felt believable, relevant, and changed my mind was Octavia Butler. It wasn't even that long ago that I read Parable of the Sower. I read the whole trilogy and I was like, I think I actually do like sci-fi <laughs> as this sort of way to understand the world and to imagine forward. And there is the reality of we can't continue to just talk about what we don't want to happen or what we see that is wrong in the world, because that is not going to actually help us imagine what we want and not just imagine, but if we can't even imagine it, then there's no way we're going to be able to design the practical steps towards a future where abolition and transformative justice are the practices that we are in together as a community. I have had a very similar experience with Octavia Butler I think Fledgling was the first book that I ever read. So much of the themes that Octavia Butler uses are about mixed folks. So I think that was a very easy um, entry point to me. And then Kindred was the second book that I read, which I will say I think about still to this day. My mother is someone who has a very comfortable relationship with her own intuition, with a series of spiritual practices. When I was little, my mom really taught me about cultivating my intuition. We would do this thing called intuitive driving, where she'd be like, our intuition is going to guide us. Sometimes that went better than others, but she was someone who really cultivated that your intuition matters, that there is sort of an internal organization that is connected to a spiritual practice in our family that is information that guides us and tells us. And my mom has been having these experiences over the last couple of years where she doesn't know what they are, but they feel like spiritual experiences that include seeing lights or having sort of like visions, for lack of a better word. And they're very connected to our ancestors. She doesn't always have a clear narrative, but it's like, you know, a woman by a river trying to communicate with her about what my mom needs or trying to help and care for my mom. And my mom hadn't read Kindred. And I was like, oh my God, you're basically describing Kindred. I need you to read Kindred. And she did. And she was like, oh yeah, you know, being so interested in Kindred and then having these experiences in our family of how do we imagine and envision across time our relationship with our people, with our ancestors, with their struggle and as it connects to our struggle and having spirituality be a tool for that. And I think Octavia Butler just provides such beautiful models for how to think across time about questions of race, gender, social justice, our ancestors, our people, what are our liberatory visions. And I'm so grateful 
for the themes that she's explored and how I can see those practically show up in my life, especially over my lifespan. As I age, as my parents age, getting to see how my relationship with my ancestors in the past and then also visioning to the future. And what sci-fi allows us to do is have a long vision of you know hundreds, if not thousands of years. I think that is partly what's necessary for transformative justice and abolitionist dreams is to have a very long view of time. I had the opportunity to participate in something called your personal manifesto journey. Akila S. Richards, who wrote the book Raising Free People, I am one of her patrons, and she has really been instrumental in not just my choice to unschool my children, but also what that journey has looked like over time and what it has felt like to remove ourselves from an institution and the time it took to feel our way through no longer requiring the institution's approval or other people's approval related to what the institution expects you to do. And as a part of this exploration, a lot of transitions that are happening in my life, I decided to take this course with her. And one of the exercises that she asked us to do this past week was for me to think about what things happened in my childhood prior to the moment when my childhood ended. The age that she recommended we start with is age seven. My initial response to that question was, I didn't have a childhood. If we're starting at age seven, then my childhood actually ended prior to that age because of what I experienced. But then I was curious about that because I often tell kids that I work with that there is a lot of distance between two points. And sometimes those two points are hard decisions we have to make or expectations that we have for things that are going to happen. And so I'll say, here is nothing happening. Here's everything happening. I think I've talked about this before. And for me, I was like, okay, wait. We know that white supremacy is all or nothing thinking, that we get really tied into the idea of a binary thinking around time. So I ended up writing that I had an intermittent childhood. I didn't have a childhood that was consistently protected or consistently joyful, or I didn't have consistent access to just be a kid. But then I was like, okay, If that's true, then what are the moments or the milestones that she's asking me to reflect upon where I was actually a child? And one of the things that came up for me that I hadn't really reckoned with yet is that I have these memories of myself interacting with nature in like these really beautiful ways. I remember walking through the woods in Germany around the apartment, like we would go for hikes. I have memories of feeding animals across fence lines. I have memories of sitting in the grass and making dandelion crowns with a friend. I had just said to my daughter that Because someone that she knows said there's like a fae connection in our family, like we're fairies. And I was like, okay, I can't lean into that. But what I can tell you is that if I were, 
a spiritual being, if I were a fantasy creature, fairy does feel relevant. And here's why. Because my people have been disconnected from the earth very intentionally. And I have spent a lot of time in the past five years putting my hands and my feet in my garden in a way that has felt very healing. And also, to speak of your mother, also feels like what I should be doing when I think about my ancestors. There is something in me that is connected to the earth that once I started moving in that direction, it doesn't feel like it's a choice any longer. It's just a thing that must happen. When I think about these moments in my childhood, when I think about that intermittent childhood, when I use that framework, when I think about what my ancestors wanted for me and what my birthright actually is around moving into the future, I think about the past. I think about the things that I loved before something hurt me. And then the things that I loved even after that still feel there's like that through line of connection between all of the harms and hurts. These are things that have always been true for me. When I hear your mom feeling that way, I think about that. A lot of my fears related to thinking about the past and my childhood is like, what, what don't I remember? If I spend too much time thinking about this period of time, is that going to be devastating for me? And so there was something about this exercise that really allowed me to see myself in my childhood outside of the context of being hurt. And just as like a kid, like what was I doing as a kid? And part of what came up for me was that everyone says that I was a really quiet, very self-satisfied child, which I know is like very hard to believe. <laughs> My aunt said that you could hand me a keychain and I could literally entertain myself with it for like an hour. I would just get lost. And I think that's what pop culture did for me. I had the gift of imagination. I was deeply invested in storytelling, which meant that I always had an escape ready for me, like at any time. That's the other thing about pop culture and sci-fi and abolition is it doesn't just serve towards practical steps towards a goal. It's also an act of escapism where I'm like, I don't want to live in this reality right? Like that sound on TikTok or that, that singer's like earth is ghetto. I want to leave. I don't want to live in this reality. And this visioning is about escapism for me too. It would feel very hopeless to me if we were not also imagining our ways out. I feel so touched by this idea of embracing an intermittent childhood. I think that's so beautiful. That feels like a really powerful portal, for lack of a better word, into really thinking like it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? It doesn't have to be that because I was also forced to be an adult when I was a child because of the conditions around me. And it doesn't have to be that I didn't have a childhood or I had a beautiful childhood where I was able to be a child and that there were moments of each, right? There was moments where I shouldn't have had to do such adult things. And there was moments where I was playing and joyful. And that's so beautiful. I've never heard anyone say it like that. And I just feel very touched by that. Thanks for sharing that. You're welcome. I've never said it out loud before. We had just talked about how I love to play with language. 
I love to say things in ways that just feel right, even if it's not the right word. This was one of those moments where it even made me giggle because I was like in her minute child. That's like not the right use of that word, <laughs> but it, it just feels right. I'm glad that it resonates. And when I think about people listening to it, I do hope it feels like a portal. I have spent a lot of time in my life feeling like I had a bad childhood. I had a bad childhood and that was it. And this is why I I messed up in all these other ways, right? Because I had this bad childhood, but I also swung on the branches of my grandmother's willow tree. I got caught walking a frog that you don't know anybody who's ever done that. I tied a lawnmower cord that got discarded around the belly of a frog. My mom came home and I was trying to walk a frog down the street. I had a really lovely intermittent childhood. In those moments where I was able to be a child, it was actually really beautiful. I see some of the fruit in my life today, and I'm grateful that I had the the desire to play and imagine and be in the world in a way that did listen to my intuition despite all of the things around me that were either explicitly or implicitly telling me that I did not deserve, belong, need joyful, good things. It feels really important. I do this grounding practice that is grounding in all the directions, grounding in my height, grounding in my width, grounding in my depth. So that is both everything that came before me, including my ancestors, my people, my past experiences, and then grounding forward into my commitment, to my vision of what's possible and that the grounding is in being in connection with all those things, right? So it's like in the right now with the other folks, in my own dignity, in everything that's come before me, and with a vision of where we're heading forward. If I am too focused on any of those things, it's not at center. So center is in being in right relationship with all those pieces. So not too much stuck in the past, but also not too leaned forward into the future that isn't connected to the past, that isn't connected with others. One of the things that the pandemic brought to me was the opportunity to connect with disconnected family. And it was such a powerful experience. I think we've talked on here some, but my mom's dad, so my my abuelo um, on my mom's side, he he's a Perez. There's a lot of Perezes in general. There's a lot of Perezes in that side of the family. There's a lot of alcoholism in the family. Alcoholism is a big part of there being many branches of the family, and some have drifted away. He had a first family that he abandoned to start the family that is ultimately my branch. And so my mom has two half siblings that she didn't meet until she was basically an adult. And then really through the pandemic of the last couple of years, has she reconnected with her half sister? So I had an opportunity for the first time ever to sit down with these other branches of my family, including branches that were more connected to our ancestors and to our history. We all came together on a Zoom, and there was a branch of that family who were really close to my bisabuela, so my great-grandmother, so my mom's grandma, and was with her throughout the end of her life, and so had stories we didn't have in our branch of the family, and how powerful it was to be able to both connect back this lineage of alcoholism, so 
my bisabuela was married to an alcoholic. We've always known, oh, we come from a long line of alcoholics, but now I can name the alcoholics into the 1800s. It was very grounding to take the theoretical to the specific. And then I had also known that my people move around a lot. We are migratory. And I had known that generally. And then to hear specifically how people had moved throughout the Southwest, throughout Mexico, and when the Southwest was Mexico, um, having the connection to history. And then the story about my bisabuela was a bruja. She was run out of her village because she used to, you know, do the cards. So she used to do sort of like, you know, fortune telling kind of tarot type things. They didn't call it tarot. And she was apparently very accurate in what she shared with people to the point that the husbands of the women whose cards she was reading, who had been cheating on their wives and she had been like, you know, your husband's not being faithful, ran her out of town. That was part of movement. She knew information about what was going on and she was sharing that with other women. So I just think about how grounding it is, what we call intuition, which is we pay attention and we know things and people can make whatever meaning you want to make about how we notice what is happening, the stories of our family and how that really grounds me as I think forward into the future. So that grounding in the past really helps me be like, okay, I know where I am. That helps me vision towards the future. When you have experienced significant harm, At least for me, one of my questions has been, well, what was I like before then? If this kind of harm does significant damage to your brain and your body and your nervous system and all these things as a child, to the point that there's evidence and data around delaying our development, what was it like before? Is there a way for me to understand what I was like before? And I think... It was really soothing to be able to look back during a time where I was actively being hurt, that I actually wasn't that different and that whatever harm happened definitely has an impact, but like it didn't change the way that I interact with nature. It didn't change the way that I feel about stories and wanting to be fully in a story and how much I love that. Probably the reason I could be entertained with a single keychain is because I have a lot of ideas all the time. (laughs) And so clearly there was harm that happened. And also there is strength in our collective spirits, right, that helps carry us through. And some of that harm is a byproduct of the ways that other people have been harmed. I look back at my family and the things that my lineage has survived and experienced and where we are now in all different configurations, and it still feels miraculous in that there are people in my family that exist. That alone feels miraculous. Anything above and beyond that feels like extra, and so I'm really grateful that there is extra. There are folks in my family who are healing and that are moving in ways that are about being well and being in right relationship with one another. For the folks that are not, I understand why. Even though we're in a place of not saying like, oh, I understand and that makes it okay, you know, it does give texture to the ways that decisions have been made 
and where there is choice and where there isn't and how that is by design. That to me feels like the gift of thinking about transformative justice is that I don't have to look at my father and say that this human, this is all that you will ever need to know about him is that he did harm. I don't have to do that. And I don't have to look at myself and say, all you ever need to know about me is that I was hurt. And that's how I became the way that I am, because it's just not true. It's not accurate. And it doesn't acknowledge the full context of what happened to our family intergenerationally and now contemporarily. There's a fuller story here. And how then does that story help us with the future building? What do we then know about what is possible because of where we've been and because we are not afraid to interact with the spots where there is both harm and this beautiful thing that also happened? Not at the same time, but in the same context of, the, of my childhood. There were beautiful things. That's another reason why I have been so committed to a transformative justice framework is that larger vision of how we got to where we are and what that can do to inform us about how we get to a different kind of future. I've been watching the show Foundation. Have you watched it? I love that show. I need you to know that I have a friend coming over tomorrow because I need other people to see it. That's how much I love that show. I'm so glad. (laughs) Yes. It makes me so happy. (laughs) Uh, I'm so glad. Uh, What a relief. You're the first person I've talked to who's watched it. All of these themes are on my mind. Exactly this stuff, right? There's so many things I love about it, but The thing I'm thinking about so much with Foundation is the way time span runs tens of thousands of years, basically, that we are holding thousands and thousands and thousands of years into the future. And it's relatable. It's familiar. Because it's at such a long time span, it allows me to do the jump with them where I could see how we could get there, how all of that could be developed over that amount of time. Some of these pieces around how history gets lost. It's a little tiny throwaway scene in some ways in the first season where there's a story. The humans all came from one planet, but, you know, that history is lost. We don't actually know. That's the story. Really imagining how, you know, what history gets pulled through and really imagining a revolution that they're building that is meant to be thousands of years. And it's one of the only pieces of media I've seen that actually imagines a revolution over that amount of time that you're not going to see in your lifetime, that there are many, many people who are doing their part towards a transformational future that they will never see. That is exactly the visions of transformative justice. I will not see a world without prisons and policing. I don't think that's going to happen in my lifetime, but I do have a role and a place for making that future possible that I will not see. I love that about Foundation. Did this just become an accidental podcast about Foundation? I think it did. (laughs) it might have to be we might have to do (laughs) if we had a patreon this is where we'd be doing patreon only content about breaking down the episodes of foundation so i stumbled upon the show and 
There is so much that I love about it. I love the idea that someone could get so good at math that it becomes a pattern that tells you the future. That is so beautiful. It makes me think about your great grandmother because I just saw a TikTok. If I did save it, I will make sure to drop it somewhere that other people can see it. But this Black queer person, autistic, was talking about how they basically said all Black women are autistic. They were like, obviously, that's not true. However, do you know anybody who sees patterns better about what's going to happen in the future? And I was like, do I? (laughs) It's like, do I actually? And it makes me think of your grandmother, like many of our elders who just have enough lived experience, plus trust their intuition, plus whatever divination they participate in that can see what's heading your way, right? And that part of the show really captured my imagination, even as an unschooling person, right? Because math isn't just one plus one. It is about pattern making. It is about the ways that we interact with logic and it is future shaping. So it really made me very excited for that reason. I also loved the storyline that played with time travel, even though it was through the expression of light years and travel through space. It gave you that long range. But the thing that doesn't change in that long range is the relationship between people's, I mean, their relationship did change, but they still know each other because they were in cryo sleep. And so they're waking up and being able to witness what has happened in the future and how their role impacted what was happening versus what they thought was going to happen or what they thought their role was ultimately. And I also loved the way that they situated the empire versus the foundation or the rebels and then just like the general folks who are working in this very oppressive hierarchical structure. And of course, of course, of course, I loved all of the Black femme leads in this show, too. I watched the last episode of season two, and I woke up the next day or a couple days later, and I was like, oh, I'm going to turn on Foundation. I forgot that I finished it. It was a very sad day for me, which is why I'm like an evangelist making my other friends watch it with me so that everybody knows and we can talk about it. It's just so good. So for folks who haven't seen it, There's lots of complex things about the world making, but Empire is the governing faction of the entire universe. And then Foundation is, in some ways, the group of people who are working to help humanity survive. So the short version is there's like through math, they see a pattern that says humanity's in crisis and it's going to enter a dark phase. And so Foundation is working to change those conditions so that humanity can thrive. Foundation and empire are then in this tension, and this tension over hundreds of years that we see throughout the show. And just like you were saying, the cast of characters change, but in many ways the relationship between empire and foundation is consistent. And this piece around collectivism and being able to see where do we sit in relationship to larger institutions? Um, how does myth-making happen? It's such a beautiful deep dive and meditation on those principles and on scales of change. If folks haven't watched it. It's worth the watch. 
I'm also someone who can sometimes struggle to get into sci-fi. So once I'm into the world, I'm in. But sometimes the world making where you have to get onboarded into the rules and to the reality of the sci-fi world that we're inside of, I can struggle a little bit with that. And I had that experience about the foundation where I was having a hard time getting oriented to the new world that was created. But once I was, man, I am, I am all in on foundation. I love the question that they're asking around sacrifice too. Because just like when we're trying to move towards transformative justice, there are sacrifices that we will have to make in the current time in order for things to be possible. And some of those sacrifices are up to and including death, right? Knowing that you are likely going to die at some point in service of this vision. There's also the piece that the empire is a single man's DNA, There are three leaders. There's Dawn, who's the child version. There's Day, who is the active leader. And then there's Dusk, who is the elder version. And so even the continuity of the leaders being still different, but being the eternal, right? Like they're the person who's going to track through this whole future. And that tension is really where they're like, it looks fine because we're in charge everything's great. The themes in it are very relevant to governmental structures and people who have been historically marginalized. And the tension between the people in power being aware, but also being like, but it looks good from up here. Part of what the foundation does is they're like, humanity should not have to start from scratch. And I love that about the show because that is very much what we're doing in this time right now. There was a child who was handcuffed in Lansing by police while they were taking out the trash. I immediately made a video with five things that I had learned since the last thing. And the goal of that video was we do not need to start from scratch every time. Do not believe our mayor when he says he's working on it. Do not believe our city council when they kick it off to a committee. Do not start a new organizing group without repairing the harms of the last one. Okay, get it together. All of these things that I had learned, but not just me, like these were collective learnings that many of my peers shared and the foundation is beautiful in that way that it's like they become the library. They're like, here's all the technology we've been able to build. Here's all the story. Like you said, the myth building. Here's all the ways that we have been creative in our storytelling to attract people to being a part of the foundation. And I think those are all things that we need. Those are all things that we need people to be recording and sharing what they've learned over time. I can lean on so many other people who are storytellers that talk about the kinds of conversations that we're having are suppressed and why. People use all different kinds of ways to get around the algorithm. feels very similar to the empire being like, it's cute that you think you can see the future, but we're not going to tell everybody because we still have power and we like it that way. Now that we've talked about a whole entire show and sci-fi, maybe we should probably talk about if we imagine ourselves as the foundation. (laughs) And we're looking into the future, like if we came out of a cryopod and police were gone 
and TJ was normal, like just like a regular thing that everybody did, what would that world even look like? Without spoiling anything for foundation, because I really want people to go on the journey, one of the things that really struck me that evolves over the seasons is that it really becomes clear that Empire is lonely, even though he has the sort of older, younger versions of himself, the setup of in order to be the Empire, in order to rule over the universe, is actually a very isolating experience. And it is limiting. And it makes me think about the isolation and loneliness of single leadership, where you have to rule over, where you have to have power over instead of power with folks, and how you get to do what you want. Um, And it's actually deeply lonely. When I think about what I want for people as humans, I do believe that we are meant to be interconnected. As we joke in my house, we're pack creatures. We aren't isolated creatures. We actually don't do well in isolation. So whether we like it or not, we are meant to be in relationship with each other. I do believe that that future we're building towards is of interdependence, is of how do we care for each other and make more visible the reality of being in relationship with each other. So instead of running in the background as just a part of reality, it's actually more intentional. It's on purpose. We are cultivating the ways that we are all collectively in relationship to each other. I think that is a really important part of those conditions. You know, thinking back to Octavia Butler and particularly the Lilith Brood series, one of the things I think about all the time is in the very beginning of that series, the main character is dealing with these alien creatures. And a whole first part of that book is her just tolerating and having to like deal with the foreignness. They're sort of like blob slug creatures. And she has such a visceral reaction to how non-humanoid they are. She has to learn to live with them and integrate and understand what they're doing across a really big difference. I was having that fractal experience where... It was really hard for me to read because I was having that same kind of like, oh, it's hard for me to even imagine these creatures because they're supposed to be unimaginable. It's supposed to be so other, so outside of my imagination. And then Octavia Butler really trying to, what I think is giving us tools for how do we imagine and sit through the kind of change and the kind of relationship to things outside of what we already know that would be necessary. I do think that there is some tolerance of change that is going to be necessary for our radical visions. It's going to have to look different than what we are currently doing. And it's really hard to do it differently than you're already doing because we do find ourselves in a stasis. It's very easy to, to keep doing what we're doing and we're going to have to figure out how to change and how to tolerate change and how to be different. And I think that is where pop culture can help us. That's where science fiction can help us is start to help us to imagine what would be the path to radical change to something that, that at the moment might actually be unimaginable, but what would it take to prepare us to do that kind of radical change? When I imagine a future without cops and prisons, my imagination always starts with children. Because one of the things that I feel like is a site for transformation is very simply and basically that we don't have community schools anymore. I think a lot about how there wouldn't be these sort of Facebook messages of like, I moved into a neighborhood, but there's no kids that live on my street. And my kids go to school a half an hour away from here on a bus 
And so there's no local hub for the ways that we connect with one another. There's something about the ways that my grandparents talked about elders taking care of all the children. Some of that wasn't great, right? Like there's all pieces of this that ain't great. And also, even if they weren't parenting, they were still a part of the community that was expected to be aware of the children. And there's something about that to me that's like, we don't really have neighborhoods, which means to me that we don't really have the kind of community care and involvement and investment that is fertile ground for TJ practices. We actually don't even have to talk to our neighbors if we don't want to, because they're not necessarily relevant to what's happening within our household, unless there's some intention around that. And so for some reason, that's like my first thing, because if you have a problem with your neighbor who's playing too much music, too loud or whatever, you know them. You, you just go and talk to them because so much of these things about what does the future look like can often be overwhelming. And people are like, does that just mean murderers are out here running around? And if we can just set down for a moment the hardest parts of this, because the idea to me, what TJ means, what abolition means is that we create the conditions in our interpersonal lives, in our lived experience and in our relationships that mean that we don't get to the point where we have folks that are doing that level of harm. And what is required is that interconnectedness in order to get to that goal. If we don't have a practice of accountability, if we cannot identify a community around us, then it's going to be pretty hard to feel interconnected on issues that are important. There isn't a way for me to know who is being violent in my community because I'm not interconnected with folks in a way that would allow me to witness what might be happening behind closed doors. If we can rebuild that, if we can find a way, and schools, of course, is just one point. There are lots of practice sites that exist where community has been stripped. Those sites where there is no longer community, even I think about people in the United States are no longer accessing churches in the same way. I think there's a lot of really great things about that. The part that's maybe not so great is the part that we have not built the muscle to create community in other ways. And so folks are then like not in this spiritual community that they've been a part of, sometimes generationally, and it's a part of their cultural identity. And now what? It kind of feels similar to abolition, right? Like I left the institution, the institution's doing harm. I don't like it here. I'm going to go over here. And then what? Because we have not built these skills of interconnectedness and belonging outside of an institution that is telling us where we belong based on what we are believing, but also it's like bend the knee. If you believe this and you have to be this kind of way in order to access the community. In this sort of in-between space, it feels to me that it's pretty important that we identify and find our places of community. When I say that, I am also saying that those communities are not going to be great. They're not going to be perfect. They may be three people and one of them you don't really like. And we also have to be able to get over that. 
We are in community with people we don't like, with people we don't agree with, with people that do all kinds of things that even if they're not harmful are fucking annoying. And those are the people that we are located on this planet with, which means we are required to figure out how to be in community with those people. When you're saying like we have to get over (laughs) or we have to be willing to change, we also have to be willing to be in relationship in interconnected ways with folks that maybe we don't want to, that is going to be a challenge for the future. We are going to need really practical skills. I care a lot about how we make real our visions and how we make them functional. And I think it's so important to vision thousands of years into the future. We do have to give people some guide about what we have to do today to get there, particularly when we talk about ending prisons, getting rid of cops. The question people have is, what is going to happen when people do harm? Without those things, what's our plan? I care deeply about those questions, and I'm like, yes, let's make that plan. That plan is not going to be this outsourcing that as humans, we just love, we want there to be a place that we call that solves it. That is such a human instinct. And uh, it would be so great if I could just call the cops or if I could call child protective services or I could call 911 and the problem I had was solved. That would be great. That's not what happens. Yeah. I would love if that was true, but it's not true. And pretending that it keeps being true is doing us a disservice. And when we actually bring into the light what is really happening and that we can't just call some people out there to solve things, it actually prepares us to do what we really need to do, which is the work of accountability, of community building, of conflict, of boundaries, of the skill of being in relationship, of saying, When harm happens, we have to be really sharp inside our own communities for how we want to attend to that if we don't want it to be cops. It is this combination of skill, so self-accountability, accountability accountability in relationships, and infrastructure, right? Like we can have all the skill in the world, but if capitalism is still crushing us, that is only going to take us so far. We have to build in all the places, building skill, building infrastructure, starting today with our visions of thousands of years in the future. I opened up a email from Convergence, which I don't really know a ton about Convergence. All I know is that it's essentially a group of pastors, maybe. So I think someone had sent me access to this Good Theology conference It was lovely to hear someone in a church situation talking about the ways that we practice belonging in churches right now. What is the contemporary version of how people get involved with a church? What it said is that traditionally churches have a practice of requiring belief first, changed behavior next, And that is how you earn belonging. Those are not the exact words, but that is essentially the pattern that gets followed. I think that most of these pastors in this group is mostly Christian. What this pastor was proposing is that 
in order for churches to not just exist in the future, but to be more just, they need to adopt an exact opposite strategy where belonging comes first, which then may lead to behavior change, which then leads to belief. Belonging is the magic that moves people towards better behavior, which then gives everyone a view of what's possible when everyone belongs and no one is cast out because they don't behave well enough or they don't believe well enough. The question was posed for churches, but it was also posed, what if political groups and organizations and churches adopted this model of you belong first? That is a non-negotiable, that everyone belongs regardless of belief, which to me as someone who's out here trying to train folks and do workshops and consultations, that to me felt like a core value that I could easily adopt because there's no way for people to learn in safety if they do not feel like they belong, if they feel like the thing that they are struggling with it is not possible to talk about that without being pushed out of the community. And so when I think about the future and what it means to even learn towards that future or to grow towards that future, it's very much about we have to be in a constant practice of that sort of struggle and tension of like, yes, you belong. What you're saying right now is really harmful, and I want to explore that with you. And you may even be aware that it's harmful, but just don't know how to practice your way out of it or how that theory actually moves into the way that you interact with your family every day. But none of it is going to be a lightning fast shift. And so some of us have to be willing to be in those rooms. And I'm clear about what rooms I'm not willing to be in, where is too far for me. And also, I know other people that do that work, and I'm very grateful that they are willing to be in those rooms because somebody has to be there in the in-between spaces. Somebody has to be willing to, and and when I say this too, I want to be clear that sometimes I'm the person in the in-between space. I was just talking to a friend, and before she could even utter the words out of her mouth, because I was talking about a theory that I had used with raising my children and how the outcome of that was this thing that although my theory and my political framework is like, that's totally a fine thing to be, all of the whispers of shame and spiritual abuse and everything were just coming up to the top for me. And thankfully, I do have a practice of being like, (laughs) I'm gonna have to take a few days to respond to this. (laughs) And this is a me problem. It's not a you problem to my kids. What they're doing is fine. I have shit I need to deal with. And so I was expressing this to a friend and she was like, do you ever regret raising your kids? And I was like, fucking every day, every single day, I regret teaching them these liberatory theories. (laughs) And by regret, of course, I'm joking because they are not playing with me. Like if I say that this thing is something that I believe in and that it's totally okay for them to move in that direction, because that is a just thing. That is a safe practice. And by safe, I mean, it is safe for other folks too. Not that violence will not occur, but like it's emotionally safe. This is a thing that should be in the world regardless of what other people think. That is a really hard thing to hold as a parent who has a longer view of the world and what can happen when we are so free. 
like your grandma, your great grandmother, right? When you are so free that you have the audacity to tell people what the pattern is and you are moving outside of institution, it is very dangerous, right? So telling my kids, this is right, this is just, doesn't mean that I don't have to sit with myself when I really want to discourage them from doing things that are exactly what I told them is fair and just in the world, but it is not my children's responsibility to make me less afraid. It is not their responsibility to make me feel better about the political framework that I raised them within. I have to go to my friends who then ask me, do I have regrets? (laughs) And I'm like, yeah, (laughs) because it's harder for me. They're accepting it because I told them it was okay. It's hard for me because I have to then go back and do all my work. And I have to be in that in-between space of knowing what the theory is and then implementing a practice that is just painful for me and has nothing to do with them or not nothing more to do with how my life existed before they even got here. Really touched by this thing that you're saying about belonging and it immediately is making me think about what would it take to cultivate belonging? What are the qualities of belonging? How do we make belonging feel robust, feel likely, feel possible for folks? Because that feels really true for me. In my marriage, what has allowed me to learn and grow is a deep feeling of, I am a part of this relationship. This relationship is safe. It's secure. It's stable. Neither of us are going to peace out tomorrow. If there was ever a time our marriage was going to come to a close, that would be with care and intention. And because it was right for both of us, neither of us are piecing out. There's a deep feeling of belonging in my relationship with my partner. And in that belonging, so much becomes possible. I've learned how to be in conflict through that feeling of belonging. And those conditions made it safe enough for me to try, for me to mess up, for me to do things I did not otherwise know how to do because I'm not running the script of, will I be safe? Will I be kicked out and then not be safe? When that is taken care of so much as possible, I would love to experience that in more than just my marriage. I've had moments of that in my life where I have felt belonging, but I have not had abundant experiences of consistent belonging comes in like waves or in cycles, right? So I can think of times where I'm like, oh yes, maybe even for five or 10 years where I'm like, oh yes, I'm in a community. I belong here. Belonging is possible. But actually most of those things come to an end and often come to an end through conflict of some sort, whether that's conflict that involves me or a conflict in the communal space that brings it to an end. I'm going to sit with this idea of what does it take to cultivate belonging for on a collective level? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was talking to a friend about it, not about this concept of belonging, but about how we're fearful about new relationships with people. Our relationship, we've had a little conflict, not a ton. We've been through a thing and come out of it. So there's trust there. I know that if I do something that hurts my friend's feelings, they're going to tell me about it and vice versa. And we're going to have a conversation about it. And we're both going to survive that experience. And our relationship is probably going to survive that experience. But we've also had the opposite, where we've had people either they don't quite feel like it is possible to share, despite both of us being like, 
please, I want to hear your feedback. Like if something is not working within our relationship, the only way it's going to improve is if I also know about that thing. (laughs) I am not just welcoming that, I'm actively pursuing it. And it's still not really happening. And there's still a rupture. Thinking about the risk involved with practicing and trying to practice belonging when some folks just really don't have what they need in order to really move into it from their side. Because I can say to people all day long, I believe that you belong first. You belong. I care about you. I want to hear how you feel about things. And also, I can say that all day. And just like you said, with being willing to change, we also need to be willing to trust one another Except the consequences when that doesn't work out, which is a very risky thing to do, you know? So I feel you talking about, like, I want to feel that outside of my marriage. I want that in all of my relationships. And I definitely want it in my deep relationships where I don't have to hide when I feel like I've messed up. I don't have to hide it because I know that the other person can hold that and know that if I acknowledge it and I'm willing to work towards not doing that thing or doing things in a different way, that they're going to be willing to move forward with me rather than punishing me and pushing me out and being like, if you couldn't meet this need of mine, if you couldn't do this thing the way that I expected you to do with or without communicating that to the other person, then it now has to be over. There's this sort of interpersonal really personal conversation that we're having with ourselves around how we feel safe. I think we also have to really investigate how we are within our relationships because we can't expect other people to deliver unto us a feeling of belonging, right? (laughs) If we're... (laughs) Proceed. (laughs) I think that's sometimes what we want. Just like you said about like, if we can just call the police and they fix our problem, we start a relationship with someone and we're like, yes, give unto me all the things that I like about being in relationship. And I will not be participating in any of the part that is challenging or is is about me, is about the fact that I am the one who didn't say anything, or I wasn't clear about my boundaries, or I'm the one who didn't show up for that challenging conversation. I once heard somebody say, and I think I've already said this in this podcast, you have to first kill the cop within yourself, right? And I think there is this sort of acceptance of punitive measures that didn't just infiltrate the way that we interact with what we would consider criminals. We have adopted it in the way that we deal with our relationships from children to everybody involved. If we see a future where interconnectedness is really vital to the ways that we are going to survive, then perhaps we might want to consider that those relationships also need to be non-punitive, non-carceral in the ways that we interact with one another. I'm not sure that folks are even often aware how deeply those things have dug into our brains and the ways that we respond to things. Yeah, I um, relatively recently had a three and a half year committed romantic relationship end, and it ended really abruptly. So 
This person literally told me they changed their mind overnight. It is obviously more complex than that, but it really surprised me. I didn't see it coming. In some ways, it was, when I think about the worst case scenario, which is that someone I am deeply invested in, deeply committed to, will just leave tomorrow. That is actually what happened. (laughs) Um, And... Oh, yeah, it was really, it was really painful. It was a heartbreak that was, felt very, heartbreaks feel like physically painful. And while I was trying to make sense of that and sort of collecting myself after the shock of this person just, I guess, changing their mind pretty abruptly, I was talking to my mother. And one of the things that she said to me, as my mom does, is, you know, sweetie, I'm so sorry for this pain. And it's not the responsibility to take care of your feeling of not wanting to be left or your feeling of abandonment. Like that's actually not their job to take care of. And of course, it's so painful. I'm so sorry that happened. And that's actually not on them. They don't have to hold that your fear of being left. And so as my mother does, she like really tells it to me how it is and I just think a lot about that, which is many things can be true at once. It was very, very sad that that relationship that was really important to me ended so abruptly. And this piece around, it has also been very important to remember too, that the worst can happen and we can be okay. I think it can be easy. I think in the wake of heartbreak or like when the thing you're preparing for happens, right? Oh gosh, I'm just going to be left. And then it actually happens. Sometimes that's not just, you know, bracing for a mysterious bad thing. Sometimes that is a reality that we are preparing for. It can be easy to have these things of like, well, great, I will never love again, or I'm never going to trust somebody like that again. In some other ways, the lesson that I have been taking from this experience is the hard thing can happen and we can be okay. I don't have to outsource my sense of okayness with other people. I don't have to have this individual person not leaving prove that I'm lovable or prove that it's possible to do these complex ways of being in a relationship. It's too much to put all of our radical visions on a couple of people. If we feel failed in moments or if we feel like, oh, I did it. I really tried to make this radical new way to be in a relationship and it hurt. It was painful that that actually happened and it's okay. I'm still in complex radical relationships with people. I'm actually living a great, happy life. All it was, was painful, but actually it's okay. My needs are met. I'm all right. The world still is turning. What also becomes possible when we are doing life, right? (laughs) Like that's actually what I think life is for, is to keep practicing all of these things together, which is why transformative justice feels so built into my way of being, because it feels like the task of life which is to keep practicing how we are in relationship with each other. Sometimes it's going to be transforming us into exactly who we want to be. And sometimes it's going to really fucking suck. All of that is the practice that helps us build. And it's practice, 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 practice. And then we turn towards and we try again and we turn towards and try again. And I don't know another way to do it except to just keep practicing with each other. You know, I'm transitioning out of my marriage. And part of what has made our transition possible, what I feel like is a really healthy, generative way, has been because I was 
and still am, in relationship with queer folks who are poly. And years before, many years, they started talking to me about transitioning in and out of relationships in healthy ways. And my children found their first loves. In my interest of making sure that they were still in their values while holding heartbreak, I started talking to them about healthy transitions in relationships. And we talked about when you're ready to end a relationship, cheating is not the way to do that. Being mean to one another is not the way to do that. Talking to one another disrespectfully, hoping that the other person ends it is not the way to do that. And these are just things off the top of my head, right? Not grounded in any reality of what I think they're experiencing. I just know that that exists in the world. And that's how I did relationship when I was young. This is how I get out of a relationship, right? Like I just bounce on somebody or whatever, whatever version of those things that I mentioned, always waiting until things have devolved so much that it's like, everybody wants to leave now. (laughs) And so I started talking about that and preparing them. And both me and my husband are talking to them about what it means to be in right relationship with people in a romantic way that does not include power and control. We got out the healing and accountability wheel from beam. And like, we go over that as a family, you know, all of these things. And so then we start moving towards this transition and we were so equipped in a way that I didn't really imagine that we were going to be because we had started to imagine that how we love each other should not be contained to whether we're married or not our relationship, we don't respect each other just because we're married. I respect you because you are a human being that not only is deserving of respect, but is also someone who like for real deserves my respect. Like we, I know you. I think about that when I think about what you're talking about. I am so sorry about the heartbreak because that is so real. And I See, your mother's uh, advice is very useful and very practical because there have been moments in our transition where we have also had to acknowledge what is mine to hold, what is Paul's to hold, and what is for both of us. And obviously, our children fall squarely in the both of us (laughs) column a lot of the times. But there are difficult feelings that show up even when you make a decision that you want to move towards. A friend of mine recommended a book called Uncoupling, How to Live Happily Even After. I don't know if you've ever heard of this book. It's so good. And the part that I really appreciated that will help, because I'm sure that these are not feelings that are over with, right, that helped me with understanding of how folks move out of relationship and what happens in our brains is that if we are not aware of it, in order to disconnect from a romantic loving relationship, we make that person the enemy. I wasn't necessarily aware of that, even though I had been in this practice of moving towards not doing that. There is a a luck and a gift and a blessing that these were the relationships I had, and this is the path that we took, I didn't know that brain information until much later. And now that I know that, it becomes a lot easier for me to give myself grace when I feel cranky about something. And I'm like, why am I, why do I even care? On any given day, this is not something I even really care about. Why do I feel 
the way that I do. And why is he acting like that? Well, because this shit is hard. And sometimes our brains are doing stuff that we don't necessarily want them to do. And we have to be extra aware of it. To know that we are also fighting against not just what's happening in our bodies and our brains, but what we've been taught about how relationships end and what is actually happening. Like, it's just so much. It's a lot. I just really appreciate hearing how you think about it. And I appreciate that people like you were honest about those transitions because it really did pave the way for me and my family to think about relationship differently. And that is what, again, going back to the foundation, like if we're never honest about the sticky part, if we're not willing to share the true story of our lives in these practices of accountability and community and where the pain points are, where it's like actually really hurt, even if we thought it was going to be different, we thought we were going to handle it differently, there is no map. Then we do not provide a map for folks who are coming behind us. And that would really be us not living up to like, when I think about the the birthright or the expectation of what an elder is and what it means to move towards a good eldership, it's those breadcrumbs. It's that path. It's lining those stones across the river. That is actually our job right now. And so I'm grateful for the people who did that for me. And I'm hoping that what we're doing by archiving our thoughts on pop culture and abolition and even the silly stuff and the stuff that gets dropped in about our families and what we know about ourselves and what we're learning is not a concrete foundation. I think about the Bible verse. It's like, don't build your house on the sand because it'll fall over. I was like, not with TJ. We might actually need the sand. Like we need things that move around a little bit because there's so much learning to do in that practice. To me, it never feels like it should ever be complete. This is where I think self-accountability can be such a powerful tool because if I just focused on what my ex did and on the ending, I don't think it would get me where I wanted to go. And it could have been very easy to focus on the story about, you know, I was in this committed relationship and then this person left me surprisingly. I think many people would co-sign that story. (laughs) And that story doesn't get me where I want to go. I can't control what they did. I can't control their life and their story. But really looking at, okay, well, what is my part in this relationship? Because I don't actually believe that in a three and a half year committed relationship that actually just, oops, accidentally, it's a surprise. When I went back and looked, you know, I felt clear that the relationship needed to be over. And... When I did my work of self-accountability, what I got clear was that I really struggle with endings. I am under-practiced at this sort of uncoupling skill of how to be caring for each other in an end. And so how I have done that is to just never leave, to just always make it work. And sometimes it's not time to make it work. Sometimes it's time and it's most loving to know how to end. If I think about self-accountability, If I had been better at that skill, if I had had that skill more developed, I think there were sooner times that I would have actually been able to end that relationship in a way that would have been in my integrity and good for me because it was clear the relationship needed to end. I don't think it 
was working for both of us. Without the skill of self-accountability, I think it would be really easy to tell a story about everything they did. But actually, this skill of, oh yeah, there were things earlier that weren't working for me. And instead, I chose this path of I would just persevere. And then when they decided not to persevere, I got mad. Instead of being like, well, hmm, was persevering the right choice? Maybe knowing how to end something when it is time is the skill. With the tool in my toolkit of being able to actually look at what my part is in my role, it makes feeling more possible. It helps me to feel integrated about the experience. And thank God, because walking around with the story about what this person did to me, there's things about it that feel good because it's really nice to be like, that person sucks, but it doesn't actually feel good. It's not working for me, but looking at, oh, okay, well, I can build skills about knowing how to end things when it's time to end things gives me a path and gives me something generative to move forward on instead of just a martyr story about how I persevered and someone abandoned me. The lesson of my 40s has been when someone tells you that something is over, even if they're not saying those words or that they don't have what they need to do the thing that they're saying they want to do, is to believe them. And I know, I know, Maya Angelou said it first. I get it. Uh, I wasn't listening, apparently. Even though I've heard that quote a million times, there is an optimism in me and a hopefulness for other people that sometimes means that I don't listen well when folks are actually saying that they're done. I'm like, no, you can do it. I believe in you. You're amazing. You can do this thing. And they're like, no, but for real, I can't. And I'm like, no, but for real, you can. Here's some more tools. And they're like, these tools are not going to help me. I'm just actually not ready. I also have had to really rein myself in and remind myself that there is a myth around endurance. There is also a practice of enabling that comes from being the daughter of an alcoholic and like a be- like to make things right for other people, to make things good for other people so that fill in the blank. Self-accountability is also about acknowledging that even when you're helping folks, that sometimes you are taking away what their lesson. Like you are, you are actually the one who's standing in the way of the journey that they need to take in order to fill in the blank. And so I also have had to have hard talks with myself around what can feel like a really good thing to do or what can really feel like, but I look at how generous. Look at how kind I'm being that I am supporting this person. And it's like, how much of that is actually about the other person? And how much of it is just that you aren't willing to let folks go? I mean, I'm saying this for you because clearly this is your problem. I don't actually know anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) You've never heard of it. It's not familiar. That's just off the top of your head. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) well amazing is there any final things you wanted to share before we're done with our season finale you know what there is and I just pulled it up because it made me very excited when I was watching foundation there were a couple of quotes that I jotted down because I loved them so much There are two that feel useful. One that I just liked, and I don't think it, we can negotiate whether it's TJ-esque, but the first one is violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Mm. I was like, that feels true. (laughs) Um, You 
know, obviously there's some nuance there, but I love that quote uh, when I think about policing, right? And then this one's the one that's a little just petty that I liked. And it was, your lack of understanding does not obligate me to explain. I really like that one too. But my favorite one is that it takes more power to build than to burn. I had definitely made a TikTok about a TJ collective that we're trying to build in Lansing. And that quote really spoke to the heart of my spirit around this work. There's a lot of things that I would love to burn down, but I really am a builder. I feel like that is where, like you said, the burning is not where my energy feels good. It doesn't get me to the place I want to be. And while there will be burning, and while I will also participate in some burning, where I would love to spend most of my energy is that building, and that building that happens with other people is where my values guide me. To support Propaganda, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. It really makes a difference.